0: I have a young friend in Rwanda who is now in his 20s. He grew up in a poor rural village. And every morning before dawn, from the age of five on, he walked for several miles gathering firewood. And once he had a large enough pile of sticks balanced on his head, he followed the path back home.
1: That's my cousin, Michael. In this episode, he's going to tell you a story. It's a story about a life-threatening challenge that affects 4 billion people on this planet. That's half of the human population. But it's also the story of one very simple thing that, if we do it, will change every one of their lives. And you can be part of it. Have a listen to this story and check out Michael's nonprofit at hazaEarth.org. That's H-E-Z-A-Earth.org to learn more.
0: His mom would make a fire on the dirt floor of their little two room house. Smoke would fill the space as she balanced a pot of porridge on three stones above the flames. And they would sit there, breathing this dense smoke as the sun rose, share their simple meal. And then my friend would walk down the footpath to school and his mom would walk to the fields to tend the family's crops. Now, this is a pretty typical scene in the countryside of the developing world. It's a hard life, uh, but it's not all bad by any means. The the people live pretty close to nature, they're resilient, they have community, and they have the pride of earning their living from the soil. But one element of this picture is, in my view, one of the greatest sources of disease and misery on the planet. And it's not what would come to mind for most of us. I'm talking about the exposure to indoor smoke. Now it turns out that half of humanity, around 4 billion people across Africa, Asia, and Latin America still cook, and in some places also heat, primarily with solid fuel on smoky open cooking fires or in some kind of rudimentary stove often in enclosed spaces with poor ventilation. In the countryside, people rely mainly on sticks and in some cases, uh, animal dung. In the cities, uh, charcoal is a lot more common. But across rural and urban households, from the poor to even the pretty well-off, exposure to indoor smoke, mainly from cooking, is the number one environmental risk factor for early death in poor countries.
1: As you know, I've also spent a lot of time in rural Africa, and I have to say that of all the challenges I've seen in people's lives, I've never thought of smoke as being as important as you describe it. I mean, is it really that big a deal? I know, Steve, it it doesn't fit our preconceptions, but exposure to cooking smoke causes
0: more death than lack of access to food or clean water or exposure to infectious disease. The estimates range from anywhere from 1.6 to 4.3 million premature deaths every year from smoke exposure. And this comes largely from pneumonia in kids, but also chronic respiratory disease, lung cancer, stroke, diabetes, and uh, cardiovascular disease in adults. Exposure to smoke increases the risk of low birth weight. It leads to vision loss through cataracts. I mean, we're talking more death than from malaria, tuberculosis, and HIV combined.
1: That's shocking. I mean, what other kinds of problems are we looking at? Plenty. There's climate and environment, time poverty, gender violence, and a general drain on economic productivity you know like most people i suspect i tend to think of climate change as being more the result of cars and power plants and factories not poor families cooking food i know it's a, it's it's quite remarkable but burning wood and charcoal
0: in the developing world releases about 2% of global co2 emissions that may not sound like a lot but it's comparable to the total greenhouse gas emissions of some pretty sizable economies like germany so it's a significant contributor to climate change. So if we fix the cooking problem, we can reduce cooking related emissions and help the climate as well. And in addition to the climate impacts, there are other environmental impacts of this kind of cooking ecosystem. And that is pretty obvious that harvesting wood for cooking and for making charcoal degrades forests, which leads to erosion, And in a lot of places leads to increased risk of landslides and flooding, which are big
1: problems in some areas. You mentioned something called time poverty. What do you mean by that? It's more development jargon, but it's a big deal. Women
0: and children spend up to five hours a day gathering fuel and then cooking in a slow, dirty way over a wood or charcoal fire. And that's time that they could be spending in more productive activities like education and livelihoods. This is a really big drag on financial security for households and the GDP of nations. And What's more, in in a lot of settings, this fuel gathering exposes women and girls to rape and other forms of gender-based violence as they walk around far from home trying to gather fuel. The World Bank has looked at this in great detail, and they estimate that the economic cost of all of this, the health impacts, the time poverty, the environmental degradation is about two and a half trillion dollars with a T. That's trillion with a T. Now, here we are. It's the 21st century. We still have half of humanity cooking the way our ancestors did 500 or even 5,000 years ago. Most of these people have a cell phone, for crying out loud. They could communicate and do their financial transactions on that 21st century device in their pocket. But when it comes to cooking, they're back in the Stone Age. We, we can fix this. In fact, we, we need to fix this. It's simply the right
1: thing to do. You and I were both at Berkeley in the 70s and 80s. And even way back then, you were talking about this. How did it get started? I got the environmental bug
0: when the first Earth Day rolled around when I was in high school. I went and studied environmental science in college, and I latched on to sustainable energy as a tool of really massive leverage for simultaneously improving the environment and the economy. I enjoyed a 40-year career advancing renewable energy and energy efficiency in wealthy nations. I ran the energy program at a nonprofit called Rocky Mountain Institute and was CEO of a company called eSource, which provided research and advisory services and data in energy efficiency and clean, sustainable energy. And it was a great run, I really enjoyed it. But a few years ago, I started getting an itch to tackle some new challenges and to apply my skills and interests to problems in less developed economies. And it turned out that our daughter had married a man from Rwanda. And we went over there to meet his family, we fell in love with the place and its people, and we went back a number of times. On one of those visits, I came upon an outfit that was taking a really novel approach to addressing the challenge of clean cooking. I met with them, I told them about my background and my desire to help, and pretty soon that turned into a multi-year relationship advising
1: them on sustainability issues. Tell me about this outfit in Rwanda and what made their particular approach unique. It's one of those
0: small world stories. The company is called Inyenyeri, which is a Kenya Rwandan word for star, like star in the sky. It was founded by an American entrepreneur named Eric Reynolds. It turns out that Eric and I had lived three blocks from one another for 20 years in Boulder, Colorado, but we'd never met. Eric had started a string of companies in the clothing and outdoor equipment space, pretty well-known brands like Marmot, Sweetwater, which made water filters for backpackers, and now NAU, the sustainable clothing company out of Portland, Oregon. And in the late 2000s, Eric completely upended his life, left all that stuff behind, and he moved to Rwanda full-time and started experimenting with ways to improve people's lives by changing how they cook. He plowed through decades of studies and reports that had been done about how to solve the cooking crisis in poor countries. He attended conferences all over the world, and he came to the conclusion that the way aid institutions and governments and NGOs had been tackling this problem was doomed to fail. How so? Well, first of all, they weren't focused enough on the primary problem, the health impacts of smoky cooking. Aid groups had spent decades promoting simple, inexpensive cooking stoves that poor people could afford. Now, these stoves were a lot more efficient than what people had been using, and that often cut their fuel needs by half or more, which was great news for the environment because it reduced pressure on forests from fuel harvesting, reduced CO2 emissions from cooking, And it reduced time poverty by reducing the time needed to gather the fuel. So all of that's great. Hundreds of millions of dollars in aid money went to promoting these kinds of initiatives over several decades. Seems like a worthy undertaking. But starting about 20 years ago, public health researchers started to uncover a pretty inconvenient truth. And that is that the risk of disease and death from exposure to cooking smoke is highly nonlinear. Cutting exposure levels in half won't make a dent in the disease and death numbers. You have to reduce exposure levels by more than 90% to really move the needle on health outcomes.
1: It's hard to believe that cutting exposure to pollution in half doesn't make a difference.
0: I agree. Uh, But there's, there's really two problems. The first is that the baseline starting point is so awful The second is that these risk-response relationships happen to be pretty pronounced curves, not straight lines. So let me take up both of those in turn. First, the baseline conditions. Traditional cooking on an open fire exposes those near the the flames, like mom and the little kids in the kitchen, to something like 400 cigarettes an hour's worth of secondhand smoke. That's a lot. And we're talking every meal of their lives, right? Right. So let's say a well-intentioned NGO comes along and gets this village to adopt an improved stove that is twice as efficient as the open fires they've always cooked on. Now, great, they're burning half the fuel, and their baseline exposure is comparable to that from say 200 cigarettes an hour in a tiny little room. It's still an awfully high level of smoke. So, because the baseline condition was so awful, cutting exposure in half still leaves you in a very unhealthy. Situation. Now, the public health people have done a lot of study to determine that based on exposure levels typical in the developing world, double or triple the risk of a whole host of deadly diseases compared to the risk levels that people in rich countries with relatively clean air face. So we're talking stroke, acute lower respiratory infections, heart disease, lung cancer, things like that. And they plot the data comparing the risk of getting the disease against pollution exposure levels. And based on the medical records and frequency of death and so on, the plots turn out to be uh, quite pronounced curves for most of these de- diseases, not straight lines. So whether it's respiratory infection, stroke, heart disease, the, the risks stay high as you cut exposure to a half or a quarter of baseline, and then they start to drop rapidly as you get to reductions of 90% or more.
1: So Michael, how far down these curves is it practical or maybe better said affordable to go? I mean, this sounds like the classic problem that governments always encounter when they try to set safety standards. You know, the problem of how to balance the protection of the consumer and the environment against the cost of doing so.
0: Yeah, exactly right, Steve. Classic challenge. And awareness of the health impacts of air pollution in rich countries and poor ones alike has been growing steadily over the past few decades, which led groups like the World Health Organization to ask the question, how clean is clean enough? And to set targets for air pollution exposure levels for countries to strive for. And they did this for a whole range of air pollutants caused both by indoor and outdoor sources, and they homed in a few particularly prevalent ones, including particulates and carbon monoxide. They set air quality guidelines defining what is healthy, and they set some less stringent interim targets for exposure levels as a step on the way to getting to healthy. Then, of course, the question arises, well, how do you measure whether a given cook stove meets these WHO exposure guidelines? So a set of test procedures was developed under the International Standards Organization that rates cookstoves on a set of performance metrics that are divided into tiers. Tier zero is baseline practice, basically an open campfire. Tier five is the highest level of performance. Now, only tiers four and five meet the WHO's health guidelines, but most of the so-called improved and advanced cookstoves that have been promoted by NGOs that burn solid fuel They fall into not tiers four and five, the healthy tiers. They fall into tiers one and two. They're marketed as clean cook stoves, but they aren't nearly clean enough to solve the health problem.
1: Okay, but what about other fuels? I mean, do people have to keep cooking with wood?
0: There are other options that could be quite clean. Electric cooking has no on-site emissions. And if the power is generated from renewable sources, that's kind of the holy grail in terms of healthy and sustainable. But the reality is that the grid doesn't reach many poor people. And even when it does, it may not have the capacity to handle large loads like cooking. Another option is LPG, what we think of as propane. It's pretty clean on site with appropriate ventilation, though there is considerable debate about its climate footprint since it is a fossil fuel. And also LPG is pretty expensive in a lot of settings and lots of governments in the developing world have had to subsidize it heavily to make it affordable for their people, which is a big drain on their treasuries. Ethanol and biogas can meet the WHO's health guidelines, but the right feedstocks for making those fuels are only available in certain settings. So all of these options have some constraints in terms of being accessible, affordable, applicable, or sustainable. They have their place, but no one of them is a silver bullet. And the fact is that we need to meet people where they are. The vast majority of poor people in the Global South cook with solid biomass fuel. We're talking sticks, charcoal, or animal dung. And the reason they do that is that that's what's readily available to them. So we have to ask a really basic question. Is it possible to cook in a healthy, sustainable way with solid biomass? And the answer is yes.
1: You said almost none of the solid fuel stoves meet the health standards, so I'm guessing that at least a few of them actually do? Yeah, that's right. There, there is one class of technologies that really stands out from the pack. It
0: uses a process called gasification. There's a lot of complicated combustion science behind this, but in simplified form, these stoves heat wood to extract gas from it and burn the gas in a very clean way, releasing very little pollution. The best ones have a fan, powered by a battery or a grid connection that enables the cook to vary the heat output, like with a modern gas and electric stovetop. They just turn a dial; the fan goes up and down, and the firepower shifts.
1: That sounds perfect. So, why aren't they being used all over the developing world? The biggest challenge is cost.
0: These things retail for seventy-five to hundred dollars U.S., and for many people in poor countries, that's simply out of reach. So. The 4 billion or so people who cook primarily or exclusively with biomass are stuck in a cruel catch-22. The stoves that they can afford can't solve the health problem from cooking smoke, and the stoves that can solve the health problem are too expensive for them to afford. So they stick with the cheap stoves, and the consequence is hideous levels of preventable chronic disease and millions of people dying prematurely. So how do we square this circle? That brings me back to Eric Reynolds. He's sitting there in Rwanda, applying his entrepreneurial mind to this Catch-22. He's searching for a business model that can solve the cooking health challenge. He realizes that you can't sell expensive stoves to people with no money. So he turns things around and looks at what poor people already spend money on for cooking, and that is fuel. They buy charcoal or firewood, or if they live in the countryside, they may spend their time gathering sticks time that they could otherwise be spending on growing more food or making money. So Eric starts to think about the fuel business, and he decides that a biomass fuel utility coupled with gasifying stoves may be a profitable way to bring affordable, healthy cooking to places like Rwanda. But to understand this, I need to explain one more piece of the puzzle, which is, I'll call it fuel standardization. It turns out that for gasifying stoves to burn really cleanly and to meet international health standards, they need fuel of consistent size and moisture content. This allows airflows and gasification to be finely tuned to the fuel. It's just the opposite of how poor people cook today. They gather wood that varies in size and species. Some is freshly cut and high in moisture. Some is dry. Some is thick. Some is thin. Even charcoal varies in composition and size. And you can't toss random sizes and types of fuel with varying moisture levels into these gasifying stoves and get really clean results. So Eric realized that he needed a consistent fuel form. And there is an existing global industry that already does this, turning raw biomass into pellets. Wood or agricultural residues like corn cobs or nutshells are ground into little particles like the size of sawdust. They're dried to a specific range of moisture content, and they're pushed through a dye, which is kind of like a giant version of a pasta maker that many of us might have in our kitchens. And out comes these little cylindrical pellets. They're about the diameter of a cigarette and, you know, a couple inches long. So Eric bought a small pelletizing machine and some gasifying stoves and started experimenting at this about a decade ago at pilot scale. He spent a lot of time in local households, observing how people cook, showing them how to use the gasifying stoves and the pellets, and making tweaks in response to their feedback. And as in a lot of innovation stories, especially in places like rural Africa, for every two steps forward, there's a step back. The stoves were good, but they're not quite good enough. One of the biggest problems was that they burned too hot and didn't turn down low enough for long controlled gentle simmering. The stoves would run out of fuel too quickly with dishes that have to cook for a long time, like beans. So they had to work with the stove manufacturers to modify the design, to get better firepower control and longer burn times. And then there was a challenge that the pellet making equipment is expensive and it's finicky. If you have contaminants in the feedstock, like sand or rocks, that damages the dyes. So they wear out, the machine breaks down, There's power outages quite a bit in a number of these places in the developing world, so that plagues the factory site, so production is often disrupted. So Eric went through several generations of gasifying stoves and pellet plants from different manufacturers. It was an ongoing challenge to find durable, reliable equipment,
1: and it was very expensive. Look, I get that the technology was a challenge, but I'm still having a hard time understanding how he was going to make all of this affordable for poor households.
0: Yeah, this is where the business model comes in and things get really interesting. Inunieri's customers could sign up to buy pellets at a price that would cost them 25 to 30% less each month than they would spend on charcoal. And once they signed up to buy pellets, Inunieri leased them a gasifying stove or two for free. So the customers loved this because they had extra money in their pocket each month And the stove was faster and more convenient to cook on, and they didn't have to breathe all of the smoke. And to make sure that the stoves kept performing properly, Inyanyere would repair or replace them for free.
1: Okay. Given what you said before about how expensive it is to build and operate these pellet factories, how could the company afford to sell pellets for less than the cost of charcoal? These
0: gasifying stoves are very efficient they need far less fuel to deliver a unit of useful heat to the cooking pot than is needed with traditional cooking methods. We're talking an 85 to 90% reduction in wood use. So while the pellets may cost more than charcoal or firewood per kilogram, you need so many fewer kilos of pellets per month, it winds up being a lot cheaper. And because this system consumes so much less wood, it reduces carbon dioxide emissions. And that reduction in emissions can be monetized by selling carbon credits. Yeri had a contract to sell carbon credits to the World Bank, which added another revenue stream on top of pellet sales. So at scale, this business model can be very profitable.
1: You mentioned before that lots of rural people cook with wood that they gather on their own. If they weren't spending cash for cooking fuel before, why would they spend it now?
0: Eric was absolutely committed to serving everyone, even the poorest remote rural households. He baked that into the charter of Inyanieri, the, the company. He looked at their situation and realized that while they have little or no money, they do have access to wood. So he developed a barter model whereby people could gather wood and swap it for pellets. If they did that, he loaned them a stove for free. A typical rural household in Rwanda uses around eight kilos of wood a day to cook. They can cook the same amount of food using about one kilo of pellets in a gasifying stove. To ensure that there was some other benefit to these folks and to reduce their time poverty, Yeri allowed these rural households to swap only about half as much wood as they used to gather for pellets. So that meant they spent less time gathering wood, had more free time to spend on other activities, including earning money, and had a cleaner, easier, healthier way to cook. In return, Inunyari got crowdsourced biomass to use as feedstock for making pellets. Now, of course, it's not as simple as I make it sound. There's a lot of logistics involved. Inunyari had to establish rural hubs and place staff there to accept and weigh the wood that people gathered and provide them pellets in return. Wood had to be trucked to the pellet factory and pellets and stoves delivered back to the hubs, but they did it and proved it worked and proved that rural customers were eager to adopt this cooking solution. In fact, they were the most loyal of all of Indianieri's customers with retention rates well above 90%. Now it is expensive to serve rural customers this way. And once this industry is better established, models other than a barter system might make more sense. For instance, a government could subsidize pellet sales to the poorest households just as many of them now do for other fuels like LPG or electricity. With the time they save with this cooking solution, many households can earn some extra money enabling them to pay at least a subsidized price for pellets. But those details can be sorted out later. Uh, the key finding from Eric's work is that poor rural households will embrace this kind of solution.
1: Speaking of rural customers, deforestation's a big problem in the developing world. Won't a biomass-based cooking solution just make that worse? That's a great question, but ironically,
0: a biomass pellet industry could be great for forests in the global south. Now remember, this solution reduces the need for wood by 85 to 90% compared to the way they're cooking now. So as pellet cooking gains market share, it eliminates enormous harvesting pressure on forests. We can meet cooking needs by devoting a relatively small amount of land to fast rotation, coppicing trees, sustainably but intensively managed energy plantations, essentially, while freeing up native forests to be restored to health. And responsible pellet producers will only contract with wood suppliers that engage in sustainable forest management practices. In fact, there's an African pellet producers association being formed right now that's going to include these kinds of sustainability certification requirements.
1: Okay, Michael, you talked earlier about these test protocols that have been developed for rating the performance of stoves. One of the tricky things about technology is that lab results don't always translate to what actually happens in the real world. So how do you know whether pellets and gasifying techniques are really clean enough to solve the health problems?
0: That's a good point, Steve. Uh, Lots of studies over the years showed cook stoves performing worse in the field than in the lab. But a recent study by a team from North Carolina State University proved that the gasifying stoves that Yeri was deploying in Rwanda are nearly as clean in field operation as LPG, as, as propane. They measured emission levels from a variety of stoves in Rwandan homes, including the gasifier that Ininyera used, which is made by a Dutch company called Mimi Moto. And their conclusion was that the Mimi Moto stoves were nearly as clean as propane could meet the WHO exposure guidelines and had the potential to yield really significant health benefits.
1: All of the other kinds of biomass stoves that they measured had far higher emissions. So it sounds like customers like this system and the stoves actually perform pretty well. Has that been enough for Yeri to succeed?
0: The customers loved it. The company didn't need to do much marketing because word of mouth created more demand than they could serve with their one little pellet factory. At its height Yeri was serving about 6,000 households and was teed up to start selling carbon credits to the World Bank. In many respects it was a raging success. But to become profitable the firm needed to scale up to serve around 100,000 households. And although it had raised more than $10 million in grants and loans over a decade to prove out the concept and to get that far, it was not able to raise the additional money that they needed to scale up. So sadly, at the beginning of 2020, the company ceased operations and went into bankruptcy.
1: So is that the end of the story?
0: Well, thankfully not. Uh, It might be a classic case of pioneers get the arrows, settlers get the land. A couple of new firms have been started by former members of the engineering team. One is called Biomasters in Rwanda. Another called Better Cooking Company is launching soon in Kenya. And there's another firm called Emerging Cooking Solutions that has been operating for a few years in Zambia and is expanding soon into Mozambique. And are you involved in these ventures? I'm involved indirectly. I raised some angel funding for one of them, and I've decided to start a nonprofit to raise awareness and support for companies in this space. Yeri plowed so much ground. It answered so many questions. And now the trick is to take those lessons and apply them to a few firms that can get big enough to be commercially viable. All it would take is a few tens of millions of dollars, preferably from foundations and donor agencies like the World Bank, to prove out and de-risk the concept at commercial scale with a handful of companies in a few countries. And if those examples can stand on their own, once they reach critical mass, it would be far easier for them to raise private capital to fuel further scaling of this approach across Africa and beyond. And not just them to raise the capital, but other entrants into the market. A few tens of millions is a lot of money. Yes and no. In 2015, the UN General Assembly agreed on a set of sustainable development goals to be met by 2030. These are big, hairy, audacious goals to lift up humanity. Things like ending poverty and hunger, providing good health and quality education and clean water and so on. SDG number seven reads... Ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. And cooking sits under SDG 7. Now, at the time the SDGs were agreed upon, the costs of reaching them were estimated to be in the range of $2.5 trillion, with a T, for the developing countries. To put that in context, the global economy is around $90 trillion a year. So this was always going to be a big lift. It was going to require a lot of money. There's a group called the Clean Cooking Alliance that has analyzed the cooking component of SDG7 and says that by 2030, we really need about to spend about $4 billion a year to meet the cooking targets under that SDG. Now, actual investment into the sector in recent years has been around $30 or $40 million a year. So clearly, we're nowhere near on track to meet SDG7 by 20. Now, there are a few encouraging signs. Uh, The World Bank has established a clean cooking fund that hopes to raise $500 million over the next five years and leverage an additional $2 billion in private and public investment to provide access to clean cooking across the developing world. And it's gotten enough early funding to start financing projects. So there's some progress being made.
1: So it sounds like there's help on the way.
0: Yeah, but it's essential that the development development community learn from its past mistakes. Too many of the efforts have been one-off projects conducted by NGOs that don't have the means to sustain themselves in the long run. Things like giving away cook stoves to poor households. That's great for the short term, but when the funding dries up and the stove breaks, those people go back to what they were doing before. Moreover, a lot of that support has gone to these tier one and tier two solutions that aren't clean enough to solve the health problems. So what we need to do with the scarce investment dollars flowing into the sector is to focus on standing up private companies with a social mission that can make a profit while solving the cooking crisis with tier four and five solutions. We need to really carefully target free or concessional donor money to help those companies reach scale. And just think about how utility companies here in the States got started, particularly in the boonies. It took a lot of capital up front to build the first power plants and to string distribution lines. A lot of that capital came from the public sector in the form of very long-term low-interest loans or outright grants. Think about FDR and the Tennessee Valley Authority and the big Western dams built with taxpayer money to provide cheap hydropower to public power utilities across the West. Those utilities weren't able to pay their own way until they reached critical mass. Well, pellet fuel utilities are the same. The capital requirements for a pellet fuel utility are around 300 bucks, give or take, per household. That pays for the pellet factories, a couple of stoves per household, the trucks and grinders and other equipment that's needed. And that's, it turns out, considerably less than the per household capex for expanding the electric grid to rural areas or even bringing LPG infrastructure that last mile. So donor money is critical at this stage to de-risk the concept and give private investors the confidence that this can be profitable. So in this context, several tens of millions of dollars isn't that much money. It would stand up a few example companies, prove the model, and after that, the private capital would flow.
1: What precedent is there for private capital organizations to invest in ventures like this? Probably the best example is the off-grid solar market
0: in Africa. These are companies that install a small solar panel with a battery at homes in off-grid areas to power phone charging, a few lights, maybe a radio or a small flat screen. Or maybe they build a village-scale mini-grid powered by an array of solar panels. And when companies first started doing this about a decade ago, it was tough to raise money. In 2012, the entire sector raised about $21 million. By 2016, and in the five years since, the sector has been raising more than $300 million a year, and that continues to grow. So I think that's a pretty relevant example of what happens when investors come to understand that this venture can work, can be profitable, and is a good place for them to put their money.
1: You know, Michael, I have to say that all of this feels pretty far removed from the so-called middle-class world. I mean, you and I have had the privilege to actually see what the life of these people looks like, but most people haven't. How can listeners relate to what you're telling us? I mean, is there an analogy that they can compare it to? Think of going camping as a kid. You get to the campsite, run around,
0: gather sticks, build a fire with your mom and dad, cook hot dogs, maybe make s'mores. Remember how hard it is to breathe when the smoke from that fire drifts your way. You know, how your clothes and hair smell of smoke, how you can't wait to take a shower when you get home to get rid of that smell. Now, imagine making that campfire inside your kitchen, on the floor, with the windows closed, every single meal of your life. Now, instead, you go to the stove, you turn a knob, you get a flame or a hot element, and you cook a smoke-free meal for you and your family. We can provide that kind of experience to 4 billion people who are still cooking in the Stone
1: Age. So what role do you see Heza, your nonprofit, playing in this story? Initially, I'm focusing
0: on a a few key activities. The first is simply raising awareness of the challenge and the opportunities among the public as well as among key institutions. I'll be producing a series of blog posts, podcasts, white papers, things like that to just raise the level of dialogue. We'll focus initially on biomass gasification because that's a solution with big potential as we've discussed today that doesn't have existing institutions pushing it. The other modern cooking alternatives already have existing champions. Another way HAZA can help in a modest way is with early stage funding. I'm hoping to raise funds from individual donors and foundations to help promising startups in the clean cooking space get the runway they need to raise larger funding. HAZE is never going to be a big funder, but even a few tens of thousands of dollars carefully targeted in the early days can make a big difference for startups. And I'm also looking at some innovations that Haza can support to help the sector broadly. Things like improvements in gasifying stoves that make them perform even better, along with support for emerging pellet gasification trade associations, things of that nature.
1: Where can people find out more or get in touch with you?
0: They can find us at org. That's H-E-Z-A-earth.org. And we'd just love to hear from your listeners, Steve.
1: Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of The Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.